Okay, if you would, turn in your scriptures to Acts 13. Forty-two and fifty-two. And if you uh, if you have determined what the fork, the spatula, and a Sunday roast means, you can just leave. You have an A for the night. We'll mark an A down. You're a, you're a perfect student. Later on, I hope it'll make some sense to you. Jimmy last week was uh, mentioned in his comments on. Romans 5, 15, uh, 16, and 17, uh, something that really caught my attention because he says as a Christian community, as a Christian culture, we have much of everything but joy. And so I thought maybe that we would look tonight at a continuation of that subject and uh, where we can find that joy as Christians. I don't know about you, but I like to browse around Christian bookstores uh, we have an excellent one here. Uh, of course, Cindy runs that, and uh, Bruce uh, meets, reads much of the books that come in, and, and before books are placed out in the bookstore, they've been looked at, they've been studied, and they've been cleared, and we have a wonderful bookstore here, and uh, I applaud those who are involved in it. But I also go to bookstores other places, and most of the time it's at malls. And most of the time, it's when my wife is shopping and uh, she doesn't want me that close to get in her way that I get out of her way and begin uh, looking and browsing around bookstores. Um, And what I see most of the time when I look at the uh, bookstores in the mall are titles of books that are trying to get believers out of their spiritual funk. That's right. Books that are trying to help believers get out of their spiritual funk. And there's, there's nothing wrong with a lot of the, the books that we have, but some of them I wonder about sometimes. We know that depression is a major problem in the Christian community. You want some data? Read George Barna, who tells us that today's churchgoers are gulping down as many antidepressant drugs as their secular neighbors. Did you hear that? Those who claim to be Christian are on as much of the antidepressant drugs as the secular neighbors. Now, I'm not saying you should not be on drugs. If it's been prescribed by a doctor and you're under his care, certainly he knows what he's doing. But I think many are going to the antidepressants when they really wouldn't need them. Now, when you look at joy, what did Jesus say about it? A very familiar verse, I have come. He says, that you might have life. doesn't say things. It says, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. He says, ask and receive that your joy will be complete. But I wonder if the Christian community is known as a joyous people. Or is it known as people who have come under some type of victimization? I hear that a lot in the counseling office. I hear about it when I talk to other people. Are Christians enjoying, that's joy in that word, are Christians today enjoying their salvation or are they enduring it? Is it something they feel like they're going through, they got eternal life guaranteed, so let's get by with it best we can. Let's endure it. I hope that's not you. I hope that you're the type that are receiving joy from it. But there are a lot of Christians who are like Eeyore. Oh, well. I guess I'll just have to keep on going. I'm a Christian, you know. 
and they go with that kind of attitude in their life. Don't you feel sorry? Don't you feel sad for them? Now, what about the, those who have been victimized? And there are legitimate stories of victimization. In 19 years of counseling, you hear a lot of it. And I've heard legitimate. And so if you're here and you've experienced something in the area of victimization, my heart goes out to you. I'm not talking to you. I know there are legitimate stories and legitimate situations. But there are many that I would say are not. And uh, over the years, I've heard a lot that I would call of the nickel and dime variety. Uh, What does nickel and dime variety mean? Well, if you listen to basketball, you may have heard Bill Rafferty. and He talks about nickel and dime fouls. And nickel and dime fouls in a basketball game are fouls that are not much. They didn't hardly even touch them. And he'll say, that's another nickel-dimer. It wasn't really a tough foul. And a lot of people dealing with victimization and the problems associated with that, sometimes I believe they're nickel-and-dimers too. And that as Christians, they should be facing them a little bit differently, and they should be facing them with joy. Now, I've heard these kind of stories. Because such and such happened to me when I was growing up, I just can't get beyond that problem. And it happened years and years ago. Again, every one of these could be legitimate, but many of them are not. Because I was mistreated in my former job, I can't cope with life anymore. I need antidepressant. Uh, Because I have pressures in my life that no one feels except me. I'm the only one that has to go through these type of things. I just can't cope either. And I've even had those who, in their sulking and pouting, will give you stories like this. I don't believe God cares about me. I don't believe God even likes me. Why won't God bless me? Why is God so much against me? That happens out there. So you see, I think some people need counsel and the drugs that go with it, properly prescribed. But some people, and this is coined often, this phrase, some people need a life. Some people need to get on realizing that as Christians, the peace that passes all understanding should be manifested in their life as they live and as they grow before him. But I want to contrast that type of thinking to the mental and spiritual state of the new Christians in Antioch in your text for this evening. And this is a city that Paul visited on his first missionary journey. What was going on in their lives? Were they victims or were they joyful in their, uh, in their walk with Jesus Christ? Would you look at your scripture as I read from Acts 13, 42 to 52? So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue, notice, to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, 
that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And notice the last verse. And this is all of the believers there. The disciples, those who were becoming believers, were filled with sadness, with depression. No, no. They were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Notice those two things. They were filled with joy. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. I talk to church leaders, not only in this town, but other places where I have friends. And, and it's, it's really amazing that when you begin, begin talking about the work of God, what they often will ask you is what I call the three, the three big ones in church ministry. When, you, when, you ask, when they ask you, how's the work of God going? And you ask them back, they'll say, well, how's your attendance? How's your attendance? Uh, How's your budget? And how's your physical plant going? Well, you know, our attendance is up. We have a new sanctuary. And I suppose our budget's doing all right. But are those really the things that should be spoken of as you consider the work of God? Look at what Paul and Barnabas shared about those who were believers. They were filled with joy and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, as you look at these, the Antioch disciples, you might say, well, they're writing the new experience of coming to Christ. And I know how I felt when I became a believer. I do, too. I remember at 19 what it felt like. And I remember the emotional roller coaster, the emotional high that I was on for a period of time. But I think they're not speaking to conversions immediately or within the last two, three, four weeks. These people had known Christ for a while because if you notice in verse 43 that the apostle urged them to continue, to continue in the grace of God. These had been believers for a period of time. Now notice when you look at the passage that I just read to you that you don't see in the text them talking about 20 rules of Christian conduct. You're Christians now, you're maturing, here's your list. Get on that list. Follow that list. Anybody see any rules? I do not see any. No, God was graciously working through the Holy Spirit, encouraging the people to keep on keeping on, to keep doing what they had begun in the Spirit. I like to watch God at work, and it's really neat because most of the time when you see God at work, these two things are there, joy and the Holy Spirit. Um, and I have come upon a, a, a good definition for grace, which goes like this. God doing for us by the Holy Spirit what we can't do for ourselves. And I know I need that. I need it tonight. I'm not a natural preacher. I've got some other gifts, but I'm not a natural preacher. I need for God by the Holy Spirit to come whenever I'm assigned tasks like this. And He does come. And we can't do it by ourselves. And if we're dealing with sinful habits or addictions, 
We need the power of the Spirit to come to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And we can talk in counseling till we're blue in the face and not get a person out of addiction. But when the Spirit comes, things will happen. Same thing happens when you're teaching a class or when you get up to sing a solo or or sing in the choir and you feel uh, that you lack confidence. God, by the Holy Spirit, can come and do for you what you can't do for yourselves. It can happen in a a marriage. It can happen between spouses as the marriage seems like it's off-centered and difficulties are coming and divorce is imminent. That the Spirit comes and changes occur. And it's a beautiful thing to see. I wish I could see it more. But uh, when it happens, it's wonderful. I don't know if you agree with this, but I think the essence of Christian living is unexplainable. As I see it, both here and abroad when I go on mission trips, and I see God come and I see God do things, I can't explain it. I can't tell you why. Can you? It's supernatural. And that's the working of the Holy Spirit. It's supernatural. Because those who have received forgiveness of sin are those who have been given the Holy Spirit when they were regenerated and justified. Those who carry on that growth then, sanctification takes place in their souls. And I see that not only does that happen in our lives now, it happens as you move from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. The difference between the Old Covenant and New Covenant is something that I think relates to the very Spirit of God. And I'd like you to hold your place there and turn to the second Scripture that we have up. And I want to look at the, the, the difference between the Old and New Covenant. Covenant. My name is Simon. I'm going, to, Simon's, I'm going to present this simple, as simple Simon would. So I hope I can help you a little bit in looking at the difference between the Old and New Covenant. Turn to James, if you would. Excuse me, not James, Hebrews. Hebrews 8. And let's read a passage first. Verse 7 of Hebrews 8. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. And here, note verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days says the Lord. And in the new covenant, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Thus, we come to the fork, the spatula, and the Sunday roast. A lot of you enjoy that on Sundays. We have it from time to time. Many of you, I know, go out and eat on Sunday, but maybe you can remember it if you haven't had it in a while. The Sunday roast. Well, let's say that church went a little bit longer than normal. Uh, 
Richard was speaking too long or Jimmy was speaking too long or the choir sang too many numbers. And you got home and your wife said, it's burning. Get in there and get it out quickly. And so the, a good male obeying orders runs in there and starts looking for the first utensil they could find to get that roast. And so they grab a fork. And they take that fork and they open up and they, they go after that burning roast and they stick it in the roast and try to, to move it and they can't move it. They can't do it. Well, I'm going to have the fork represent the Old Covenant. Because the Old Covenant couldn't do it. The reason was because it was weak in the flesh. Yes, trying to take a roast out with a fork, you've got too weak an implement. You can't do it. Now, please note, there's nothing wrong with the fork. The fork will function. It'll do its thing. Just as there's nothing wrong with the Old Covenant. But it's just weak in the flesh. So, before you panic, before your wife comes and gets you, you grab the spatula. And you slide the spatula underneath the roast. Unless it's a big, heavy one, you're going to get it out. And put it on the plate and let it cool before you begin to carve it up. The new covenant, of course, here would represent the Holy Spirit, the spatula. The spatula. And the Holy Spirit came in the new covenant to do what the law could not do. How? In Christ's atoning death. And in his resurrection from the grave. And in sending the Holy Spirit to work in us. In grace and power. The new covenant. The spatula could get the job done. So God in our text declares in the new covenant, covenant verse 10, that I'm going to reshape their thinking. How? In their minds. How is he going to reshape their thinking? In their minds. By the Holy Spirit who has come to minister and to be a part of us. God says, I'll write on their hearts. I'll write on their hearts effects that will change their desires. And their longings. God says I'm going to bring a new covenant. Otherwise we're doomed to keep coming back to God. Saying I messed up again. Run those laws by me one more time. If, if you will I'll get it right this time. But we never do get it right do we? We never get it right. It's impossible to get it right. Because it's impossible to, to obey God's commands. It's God's work from the beginning to the end. He will finish it. So forgiveness comes only through Christ's work on Calvary. And here's the key. Back to that Holy Spirit again. That Jimmy's been teaching about in Acts. Daily living for the Lord can only be done through the Spirit. Through the supernatural. Through the unexplained. Not through what we can do. Not through what we can accomplish in the flesh. Back to Acts, if you would. We know this, that the word divides. And Paul and Barnabas, in our text, did see many converts while they were in Antioch. And the whole city, it says, in verse 44, gathered to listen. They gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But then trouble comes. Trouble comes to Paul and Barnabas. And the Jews saw how big the crowds were becoming. 
And they were filled with jealousy. They were angry. And they began to talk abusively. Look at verse 45. They talked abusively against Paul and against Barnabas. So then some of the listeners turned them down flat. And what did they do? They began to harass them. And his opponents were not the -the run-of-the-mill people. Look at what it says in verse 50. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. It wasn't the commoners. It was the the people of high esteem, high political offices that were turning them down and harassing them. Some have said that Paul never left the city until all of them became converted. But you know what Jimmy says? Look at the text. And you look at the text and you see that 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 was not true. Now, I think it is true that probably Paul and Barnabas spoke the gospel to everybody or as many as they could get to. But not all all of them came to Christ, such as in this example. Uh, I think that's the case. But the word divides. And the gospel message brings opposition. You that are beginning to consider evangelism, you'll find that to be true. The word does bring opposition. And uh, rejection can come whether it's in Memphis, Tennessee, or Recife, Brazil. It does happen. The Word of God has a dividing characteristic. It's double-edged, and it cuts both ways. And Paul was a great realist, and I like when he writes this. Paul said, "We we are to God, speaking of believers, speaking of Christians, we are to God the aroma of Christ, and we bring either the fragrance of life to the saved, we bring life to the saved, but we bring the smell of death to those who are perishing. And that's so true. But be enthusiastic, my brothers and sisters, because great harvests await those who are preaching Christ with the Spirit's help. And I think we're experiencing that right here at Grace Event. But I want to wind down and say we still must be aware of the market mentality that goes on in churches today. We've heard sermons on it. Good sermons on it. I don't think our church is about this. But there are many that are. That are bowing down. To the wishes and performances. Or preferences of certain audiences. What would Paul and Barnabas say to these kind of people? Well what did they do? When they got rejected. Shook off their feet. and Headed out. Said we're going to take the message to the Gentiles now. The Gentiles are going to hear. They, they did not let them get, it, get them down. They stayed on course. They didn't, they didn't move from the purpose that God had given to them. And I wonder sometimes if we think we're smarter than the people in Antioch's day, Paul and Barnabas, as they dealt with them. I think sometimes we do. But if we're smarter and we're better, let me ask you a question. Where are the spiritual results in 2002? Where are the spiritual results if we've got better ideas, if we're smarter? If we're we're more creative, where are they? Came across this magazine article that blew me away this week. And the title of this is Trends. Is America losing faith? That's the question. And it says, surprising report claims spiritual backlash after September 11th. 
I think all of us gloried in the patriotism. All of us were pleased with the president's speeches. All of us were, were into the bravery of the men and women who died for their country. All of that was wonderful, wonderful for patriotism. But what happened spiritually? I think Richard and I were chatting the other day, and I think Richard mentioned that after about four weeks, the attendance in churches had gone back to normal. In some ways, it even slid, slid below what they were before. All right, listen to this report. Now, this is a report over the last decade. We're not talking about 1970. We're talking about 1990 to where we are now. And in a way, it'll discourage you, but in a way, I think it should encourage you because we got a lot of work to do in the body of Christ. So let me tell you what it says. Unbelief and unconventional belief are on the rise. The number of Americans who did not consider themselves to be religious not be religious, more than doubled in the last decade. According to a major new national survey that also found significant growth in non-Christian faiths. The proportion of the population that considers itself Christian fell from 86% in 1990. It says consider themselves Christian. We know that they wouldn't all be Christians, but the 86% considered them has fallen to 77% this year. Over the same time period, the number of adults who classified themselves as belonging to non-Christian religious groups grew from 5.8 million to 7.7 million. That's almost 2 million. The number that said that they did not subscribe to any religion grew from 14.3 million to 29.4 million. The era study of more than 50,000 people also revealed that 16% of the population had a secular outlook on life, and 23% of those who now say they have no religious identity once said that they did. Although their overall totals were still comparatively, comparatively small, there were sizable increases in the number of people who identified themselves as, and here are some of the cults or beliefs, Hindu, sizable increases in the last decade. Hindu, Native American, Buddhist, Taoist, New Age, Sikh, that's S-I-K-H, and Wiccan, witches, and Wiccan, and the big four, which are having growth unlike in the rest of them. You know what the big four in, in cults are? Here are the big four. Mormon. Mormonism. Islam. Jehovah Witness. New Age. There they are. There's the big four. Mormon. Islam, Jehovah Witness, and New Age. Um, I was on the phone talking to a gentleman that Jimmy asked me to call that is in apologetics. And we're trying to put together in the fall sometime a conference. This man would come. He's, he's an expert in the field of the cults and apologetics. And he wants to come and teach us how to witness and evangelize to these very groups that I just mentioned. Uh, I think it would be very exciting and very beneficial. But look at that. And then... Listen to this. This is what he told me, the expert on the phone today, 
told me. He told me we're having a cult explosion. I think some of you know that. Listen to this. There are 3,500 to 4,000 cult groups in America. No, excuse me, worldwide. I'm sorry, it's worldwide. 3,500 to 4,000 worldwide. You know how many that involves? 40 million. 40 million involved in the cold explosion that's going out throughout our world. Woo! It discourages me, but at the same time encourages me. Because we've got the only truth, the gospel. we just got to get it out to those people who so desperately need it. Let me close down by saying, what was the result of taking the gospel to the Gentiles, as in our text tonight? The word of the Lord, you'll notice in verse 49, spread throughout the whole region. Um, but the upper class enemies began to kick Paul and Barnabas out of town. And I thought, what about the common people, the, the, those who are being, becoming Christians and disciples? They were left. And uh, they were in a vulnerable position, a very vulnerable position, because you can think like this. I did. Uh, they had no clout in the halls of government. The, those people were the ones that kicked Paul and Barnabas out. They didn't have any clout there. Uh, their faith, although they were growing, although they were maturing, was still tender and new. Uh, the spiritual leaders were now gone. Paul and Barnabas and, and those who had trained them and, and been used of God to convert them, they were out of there. They didn't leave pamphlets. They didn't leave, leave books. They didn't leave any literature for them to study. And there certainly weren't, weren't any church buildings because the churches were in the homes. The opposition was strong. Did they say, I give up? I feel abandoned, uncertain, I'm depressed, I'm victimized, whoa, whoa, poor is me. Shall we forget about following Jesus? No, no. Luke tells us, here's the report. And as for the disciples, they were more and more filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They were more and more Filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The difference is the Holy Spirit of God. Do you love Him tonight too? Or do you just put Him under the rug and say, I, I deal with the Father and the Son? I hope you don't because we need the Holy Spirit in our lives. And it's a part of the gift package that comes when a person is regenerated and justified. Yes, it's the Holy Spirit that overcomes hostile environments such as what we read about tonight. It fills us again and again with His joy. He helps us against the strongest tides. And we can have joy even in the hardest times. I like the simple songs. If you want joy, real joy, wonderful joy, what's it say? Let Jesus come into your heart. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine and all the joy that comes with it. And I even like this one. I don't know if it's doctrinally correct, but I sure like it. It says, I got the joy, 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 joy. Where? Down in my heart. You ever sing that? Down in my heart. Down in my heart. I got the peace that passes understanding. I know I don't sing like Jimmy. Down in my heart. I have the blessed love. Amen, somebody said. I have the blessed love of the, of the Redeemer down in the depths of my heart. We need joy. We need real joy. Where can we find it? They found the joy is the Holy Spirit work in their lives to do the ministry God had called them to. 
We're not under the fork. We're under the spatula. Let's let the Holy Spirit work in our lives. Father, we thank you for this time to look into your word. And I pray that while we've looked at some discouraging statistics, that we might be encouraged that the world is out there and we've got the the news that they so desperately need to hear. Lord, help us to be ambassadors of Christ, filled with the Spirit more and more until Jesus comes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, good night. Have a good week.